So yeah, like, so as Andy said, um, I just got back from Israel this, this past week, um, and I learned a few things. First, don't give Andy two weeks to write jokes, because <laughs> you'll get roasted for a while. Uh, so that happened. Uh, I didn't know he was going to do that. But also just had uh, an amazing, amazing experience in the Holy Land. Spent um, 10 days, so 12 days total, one day travel on either side, and then 10 days just kind of walking through the land and seeing all of the different sites that there were to see. Kind of the theme that we had for the trip was, was, uh, was taking these black and white images that we had in our head, right? I've read through the scripture. This is my first trip to Israel. Um, and uh, we have all of these images in our heads from the story about what things looked like, where they are, how they relate to each other. And so we, those are kind of black and white images, right? They, they, you can see them, you can picture them in your mind. Um, but when you actually go there and walk it, we talk about how that brings it into color, uh, which is really, really true uh, for this trip. To see some of the places that Jesus walked, to see some of the places that biblical stories happened was just was, was life-changing. It was amazing. I, have, I do have a ton of stories. I would love to share them. I'm sure you're going to hear them a lot over the next long time because they'll relate to the different things we're teaching. Um, but one of the ones I wanted to share, and maybe if you were following along, there is a blog online too. You can kind of follow through the whole trip that way. It should still be there and up. Uh, but there was one story uh, that I wanted to share. This is the group. Sorry, I didn't see that. That picture was up. That was the group we went with. Uh, that's right outside the Western Wall. You may recognize that from pictures you've seen in the past. See the Dome of the Rock there right behind it. Um, there was 47 of us on the trip, which is a big group. Um, but that group, uh, we, we bonded um, and, and ended up becoming what, what we referred to as an insula, which is the Greek word for family, right? This idea that we were caring for each other in that way. Now, there's one story, though, that I did want to share because it was, it was an eye-opening experience in a really powerful way, and I just taught about the story only about a month ago, which means it won't come back for a long time, and I can't wait a long time to talk about it, so I'm going to do it now. Um, we spent three days in the, near the Sea of Galilee up north uh, in Israel, and while we were there for the first three days, we, we observed the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee um, from Mount Arbel, which is right by it there, um, and as you can see, it's not a very big lake. And I had known that going there. Maybe you had heard that before as well. But when you see it, when you actually see it with your own eyes, especially being from Michigan where we have lakes everywhere, including Lake Michigan, you realize how not big it actually is. Um, you can see across it, that's, probably, that's the biggest, widest part of the lake there too. Um, or sea, they, they, the, the Jewish people refer to it as a lake because that's more appropriate than sea. Um, and you can see it's just not that big. And so as the first three days we were there, you can see out on the, on the lake as well, there, there's no waves. There were no waves at all. It was calm. Um, it, was, it was gentle, like barely lapping even up against the shore. And I remember thinking to myself, because we had just taught not that long ago on the story of Jesus calming the storm. And uh, earlier, earlier um, on this particular day, we, we had a chance to see an ancient fishing boat. So um, it was a great archaeological find a number of years ago where they found an ancient fishing boat that had sunk uh, and then been covered with mud. So that preserved it so it didn't rot out. So you actually, there was a, they actually walked us through how they got it out. It was a huge, really intricate process of getting this boat out of the water uh, and preserving it. But you could see an ancient fishing boat that would have been used during the time of Jesus. And you saw that little boat. And even seeing that little boat, realizing it's not... Impressive. It's a small little fishing boat. Um, it still made me wonder that day, how in the world would a storm on this lake be terrifying in the way the Bible described it? 
And I have to admit that even though I believed this story and I trusted it, I was still running that through my mind of, God, it just doesn't feel like that could get big enough to be scary. Until the final night we were there, we experienced this. That is a storm on the Sea of Galilee. So we were, in our, we were sleeping, and all of a sudden we started to hear the windows rattling. We started to hear uh, the wind whipping, uh, and looked outside and saw this. Again, we hadn't seen a wave in three days, and all of a sudden that's out there. In the hotel we were at, I actually have, a, have another, the next slide kind of shows what happened. That's what we woke up to the next morning. Um, so if you see that there, you can see all of the, the, the equipment that they had out there just got washed into the, the front of the hotel we were staying at there. Um, you can see in just a minute here, you'll see the chairs. They're actually sunk in the pool there. An entire gazebo blew over. Um, they had to evacuate the bottom floor of our hotel. Luckily, none of our people were on that floor. We were on floors three and four. Um, uh, and the dining room was also on the bottom floor. It was completely destroyed. And so all of a sudden, um, this story made sense, <laughs> right? You're like, oh, that's, that's how it would be terrifying. Because uh, if a storm like that hit when you were in that dinky little fishing boat, um, I think I would feel like I was going to die too. Uh, realizing that the entire beach of the Sea of Galilee is made out of rocks. So even if you were able to get to shore, if that was going to hammer you into them, you'd be in big trouble. And so it's just one of, that was one of those instances in which the stories that we read about so often just kind of clicked into color, and you can experience. Apparently, the storm that hit us was a once-in-30-to-50-year storm. does not happen very often. Uh, it was all over the Israeli news um, because of the damage that it did and how severe it was. The other thing that was really interesting about it is all of that happened without any rain, which, if you read the story uh, of the calming the storm, uh, it says that Jesus stood up and he calmed the wind and the waves. And you're like, well, what about the rain? There wasn't any, right? It was just wind whipping around, uh, causing all of those things. And so it's just another one of the instances that we experienced so often on the trip of the stories that we read about happening the way they were, they were told. Uh, and that was just one of those experiences. Uh, like I said, over the next bit here, I'll share many more of those experiences because time and time again, uh, I was amazed by by how much, more, how much more depth there are in so many of the stories we read when we get to see the locations. But moving into what we were, we're, we're talking about today, um, so this, the sermon that I'm going to give this morning actually wrote on the plane on the way back, and I was trying to kind of capture all of the different things we experienced, and how can I lead that into to the series that we're a part of. We've been working through the book of Matthew for the past year, trying to walk through uh, the life of Jesus and see what that, has to, what that means for us in our current space right now. So I was wondering, how do we, make, how do we retie both of these things together? Because I don't want to come back and just teach completely uh, separated from, from where I've been for the last two weeks. And then it, it kind of hit me. Um, the last night we were in Israel... We actually ate in a diner, in the upper room of a diner overlooking downtown Jerusalem. Um, it was, yes, it was amazing, if you were wondering. It was awesome. And so we got to sit there. We could, see, we could see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We could see the Dome of the Rock. We could see downtown Jerusalem. And so we spent time in that space just reflecting over what the trip meant to each of us, kind of sharing what some of the highlights were for some of us. And there was one quote that really, really stuck out to me. Uh, as it, was, it was shared by, by a woman from Walker Harbor named Sue. 
Um, and she, she just stood up and said, this trip was, was, was everything I hoped for and, a little, and even more. She says, but I was surprised by one thing. She said, I came to Israel because I was fascinated with living water, right? The imagery in the Bible often of living water, this, this, the water, water-filled places of Israel. And she said, those were great. She goes, but where I really met God on this trip was in the desert, which I thought was fascinating. I came for the water, but I met God in the desert. And I think that passage kind of captures a lot, or that, that statement captures a lot about what we're going to see this morning as we continue in Matthew. Because where we've gotten to is Matthew 11. I just want to read the whole story, and then we'll kind of break down what's going on here. So if you're following along, we're in Matthew 11, starting at verse 1, which says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard, when John, this is John the Baptist, by the way, heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messengers ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not yet risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Now this is a strange story with a lot going on here, and I, I, I want to help us break it all the way down. But perhaps one of my biggest takeaways from my time in Israel uh, was the affirmation about how much context matters when we're looking at these particular stories. So much of what's happening here, uh, all of the biblical writers tell a story that has a surface meaning to it, and then can be, they can gain a depth and insight when you start to actually place it into real time and real space, uh, where you can see where these places are located and how they relate to each other. So I want to help you with some of that today. So let's walk through the passage in that way. First, the passage starts this way. It says, Jesus is, is, is in Galilee, which is up north. So I think we should have a map here that we should be able to throw up. So Galilee is that region in the north. That's the Sea of Galilee, the same Sea of Galilee we just saw with the storm there. Jesus is up in that region. It's actually where he spent most of his time. About 90-some percent of the things we read about in the New Testament, or New Testament Gospels happens in the northern part of Israel. So Jesus is up there, uh, and he's preaching in that space. We, we were also told that John the Baptist is not. 
He's not in that northern space. He's actually in a fortress uh, called the, the, the uh, Macareus, Macareus uh, which you can see down south, just east of the Dead Sea there. So you can see Jesus is north in Galilee, uh, and John the Baptist is in a fortress down south. Now, a quick bit of history about what's going on in this particular region. Um, the, there, was a, there was a very well-known historical king who reigned with, during the time that Jesus was born. Um, maybe you've heard about him. His name was Herod. Um, he's also known by the rest of the world as Herod the Great. Um, one of the reasons he was known as Herod the Great is that his architectural developments in the ancient world were unbelievable. Uh, we actually got to see the Herodian last week, which is um, his palace nearest to Jerusalem. Um, he built that place by building his own mountain first. There was no mountain, and he made slaves build a mountain and then build a massive fortress on top. Uh, one of the cool features for those architects out there, he actually developed, uh, maybe the only one we know in the ancient world, uh, a kind of rudimentary air conditioning. So if you look at the Herodian, uh, it had double-layered walls with little slits in the sides of it. The wind would hit that, whip around that double wall there, and cool down the middle. Um, it, we haven't found anything like it anywhere else in the ancient world, but he built that. Uh, and they believe it was for air conditioning. So as the wind would go around, it would cool everybody inside. It's a really hot space, so that would make sense. Anyway, uh, after Herod the Great died, he then divided his kingdom up. We have this next slide here, between his three sons. Each of them were given a different region. So you have Archelaus here, which, which is the big area in the red. Uh, you had Herod Antipas. So most of the time during Jesus' life, you hear about another Herod. It's not Herod the Great. It's most of the time as Herod Antipas. Uh, and then in the north, we have Herod Philip. Um, he, was, he, would, he reigned over the Decapolis in the northern region there. So like places like Caesarea Philippi were founded by Herod Philip. So Herod divided his kingdom amongst his three sons. Um, and in this place, uh, in this particular story, what we're talking about is the, is the area that was ruled by Herod Antipas. So that fortress was run by him. Now, um, Jesus is preaching in the north, and John is sitting in prison in the south. Now, we know from the book of Mark that Herod, Herod Antipas, um, has arrested John the Baptist, but he's afraid to kill him because he's, he's afraid of what would happen, um, what John's followers would do. Um, John was a popular prophet of the time, and so to kill him would have consequences in the area. So he held him in prison there. You see, John had actually preached against Herod, which we know, um, because he had married his brother's wife, which is not something you ought to do. Your brother's wife is still married to your brother. And so that was what was happening, right? So Herod's, Herod's, uh, Herod married his sister-in-law, um, who was actually also part cousin. So it's a messed up situation. You can see why John might preach against it. Um, and so John condemned that particular marriage and had put, been put in prison for that. Now, what we know is from the historical records is that John spent at this particular time a little over a year in prison, which is a really long time, especially when you put it in context of Jesus' entire adult ministry. We believe Jesus' adult ministry was only about three years long. And so for one-third of that, the first third of that, John is sitting in prison in the south. And so as time goes on, what we see is that John begins then to question some things. He's got a lot of time to think. I'm sure he's hungry, he's cold, he's not feeling great about life. And he starts to ask, is Jesus the one? He actually sends his disciples up to ask. Now, 
for me, for most of my, of my life, that was a strange question for John to ask. If you've been walking with us through the New Testament, you know it wasn't that long ago where we talked about the story of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. You guys remember that story? Just a quick recap on it, right? Jesus comes to John the Baptist. He baptizes him in the Jordan River, and what happens? Right? The sky opens up. A dove comes down, and God speaks from heaven. Uh, that would be an experience, wouldn't it? I think for most of us, that would probably lock in the, yeah, this guy's the guy. Uh, I know that would do it for me. Um, you know, if that ha- even if it happened to Andy, I'd be like, wow, that, he's way more special than I thought. I have the stage longer than you, so sorry. <laughs> and so, uh, so, those, so that would be a memorable moment. And so we have to ask ourselves, so what in the world is going on here? And we begin to ask, our question, or ask the question, what does John think Jesus should be doing instead of being up in Galilee? Because it says after John hears that Jesus is preaching in the Galilee is when he decides to send his disciples to ask this question. So if you put yourself in his shoes for a minute, if you're the Messiah's cousin and you had spent your entire life preparing the way for him and now you've spent a year in jail, what would you want him to do? Get you out, right? You would assume that that would happen. So if you put yourself in his shoes, you've experienced the baptism, you're, you're excited, right? And so you're, you're thinking now that the heavens have opened, that God has spoken, that now it's time to move from this preparation space, it's time for some action, right? You've you got to imagine that John gets hyped up, right? It's time, for, time to bring the kingdom, right? I, in my head, I actually think about John the Baptist turning into one of those old school hype men, right? Like, oh, there's JC, right? Like, kind of every time he does something, hyping him up that way. If Jesus heals somebody, you know, John's like hyping the crowd behind it. It's not in the Bible. That's not what happened. But that's just my own imagination. But you have to imagine that everything that John's been working for, he has to imagine now it's the time where it comes to pass. John lived a, a tough life. It says he lived in the desert. It says he wore, wore really uncomfortable clothing, that he ate locusts. Uh, he wasn't living the high life. And you've got to imagine that after the baptism, he thought that might change a bit. And like we already said, uh, uh, when John got arrested, um, my guess is his first response is, that's eh, okay, right? Um, he's arrested, no big deal at first, right? We already said he was arrested for preaching against Herod and, and the kind of the weird relationship he had going on there. I'm sure John's convictions, he felt like, I did the right thing here. And so he, felt, he probably felt okay with his preaching and the fact that he got arrested. He would have felt that he was in the right. And just like, he, just like we said, he would have been like, because the kingdom is coming. It's actually, it's reasonably possible to imagine that he was even emboldened to speak against Herod because, of, because uh, of Jesus coming on the scene. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. And as we already said, he's arrested, he's in jail, but what would he expect? Well, Jesus is going to bust me out of here. This kind of stinks to be in here, but I'm sure he's coming. But Jesus doesn't come right away. And it's not hard to put yourself in John's shoes then in that space, is it? You know, he doesn't come for the first month. Well, it kind of stinks, but he's got a lot of messiahing to do, right? There's a lot of things he's got to do out here. He's got people to heal. He's got stories to preach. He'll come back. He'll be here any day, you've got to imagine John's thinking. But then... Any day comes, and any day goes. And another day comes, and another day goes. 
and another day comes and another day goes. Day after day after day after day for a year. It's not hard to get yourself in John's shoes in that space. What's the deal? You're cold, you're hungry, you're sore. Ancient prisons were not country clubs. They were miserable, miserable spaces. And so you've got to imagine immediately he's thinking, did he forget about me? If he could save me, he would, right? You've got to imagine that it's not a hard jump then to go, he can, right? Well, what if he isn't who I thought he was? But he has to be, right? Right? My guess is that many of us have been in that space at one point in time or another. The place where John is, the place where we're experiencing hardship, and we begin to ask ourselves, what in the world is God doing here? We know David was in that space. We saw it, we see it written throughout the Psalms. How long, God, will you forget me forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day with sorrow in my heart? That's Psalm 13. So we know David at some point in his life had been wrestling with those particular questions. And my guess is many of you have been too. Wondering where God is, wondering if, wherever that goes. It's a really, really hard place to be, isn't it? So John's wrestling with that. So he, he sends his followers to just straight up ask Jesus, hey, are you the guy? I need to know. And Jesus' response is fascinating because he quotes the Old Testament. He actually quotes two parts of the book of Isaiah, which I'll just read to you right now. It says, Then the eyes of the blind, people, blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf, uns, deaf unstopped. Then will, the lame, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute, uh, the mute tongue shout for joy. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim freedom for the captives. So what Jesus is saying here is Isaiah is saying the Messiah would look like this, this passage here. That's what the Messiah is supposed to look like. And so he's asking, he's saying, I'm doing those things. So he pushed the question back to John. So what do you think? Am I the person that was supposed to come? Jesus is saying clearly, I believe I am. I think it's proven by these particular things. But as you read through this passage, something doesn't see, seem exactly right. Because we look back at what Jesus said again. This is what Jesus says in Matthew. We read it a little bit earlier. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Okay, so that sounds a lot like the Isaiah passage, but throw the Isaiah passage up again. So the, okay, so we have the eyes of the blind open, check. The ears of the deaf, deaf, keep saying deaf for some reason, that's weird, don't do that. Uh, the ears of the deaf are unstopped. You have the lame walking. Actually, Jesus added some extra things in there too, which is nice. But we have the proclamation of good news for the poor. And then, okay, go back to Matthew again. So we have all of those things there too but we're missing something. Did anyone notice what's missing? Hey, good job, Reese. Exactly. Go back to the Isaiah one again. 
That last line, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim free the captive. Jesus leaves that part out. Why? What do you, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a practice that many rabbis would do, especially when they're dealing with people like John who know their scriptures really, really well. They make a point by intentionally leaving something out. It's very likely that's what's happening here. Jesus knows what Isaiah says, and he proclaims that all of these other things that Isaiah said would happen with the Messiah have happened, and intentionally leaves out the last part. Essentially, what he's saying to John is, you're not getting out of prison. And we know that that's what happens. So Mark finishes the story for us. What happens is, uh, John sits in jail for a year, and the wife of Herod decides she doesn't want him around anymore, and so makes Herod promise her as a present to her to have John's head on a platter. And so Herod executes him and presents her with his head. John doesn't get out of prison. So what do we do with that? Well, Jesus continues. He says, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Who are those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom was written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus begins to talk to the crowd around them who probably have heard the conversation between John's disciples and Jesus, who may have picked up on the missing line as well. And so they may be wondering the same thing John is. Why aren't you going to get him out? And so Jesus says, did you go out into the wilderness to see a weak person? A re a reeds are weak. They can get blown over easily. Did you go out to see a powerful and well-dressed person? No, you didn't. You went out to see a prophet, which in particularly in the ancient Israelite mind would trigger a whole bunch of things because they begin to think about their prophets. And what happens to all of the Old Testament prophets? didn't go well for any of them, right? So Jesus goes on to say John was a prophet, and not just any prophet, the best of the prophets. But he says, but there's something bigger happening here. He says the kingdom is coming. Heaven is coming to earth. And then we get this really weird line. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let him hear. That's a weird line, right? The kingdom is subjected to violence and violent people have raided it. What in the world does that mean? See, sometimes Greek and Hebrew idioms get lost on us a little bit. And, and this is one of those times. Because the Greek word that we have here is the word biastis. So we can throw up a couple slides later and you can see those different things. Biastis, which means force or violence, which is why it was translated that in your particular scriptures. Um, it actually, some, some translations, depending on what you might say, might also say forcefully advancing. Um, I don't know if you've got that. Yeah, so Mike, Mike must have that. Um, 
And so, so, so that's why it was translated that particular way. But we have this other thing called the Septuagint. If you don't know what that is, it's the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek. And so it's one of those tools that we can use to help understand the Greek idioms of the, of the past because we see how the Greeks translated the Hebrew so then we can understand the scope of meaning a little bit better. And, and in the Septuagint, the word biastis in Greek is used to translate the Hebrew word prats, which we also have up there. And that particular word means to explode. So if we actually insert that into the sentence that we're saying, it actually makes more sense in the way that we use idioms. You could, it would be translated this way then. The kingdom has been exploding, and explosive people have taken hold of it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that since the time of John, since the time that John began speaking, the kingdom has kind of exploded all over the world. That it has come rushing in. And, and people who have gotten really excited about it and have been pushing it out to the corners of the earth at this particular time. That idiom makes more sense to us. It's not about someone fighting someone. It's about this, this kind of aggressive advancement. It's not, it's not about hurting people. It's about the force behind which the message is spreading. Does that make sense? Kind of this explosion of the gospel going out. In other words, it's breaking forth. It's advancing. And so what Jesus is proclaiming here is he's saying, John's the guy that kicked that all off. The kingdom has been spreading across the world, and John's the guy who started it. He's the Elijah that was supposed to come. Right before this, we saw that Jesus has been building up John. He's been praising him. He's letting everyone know that, that John has done what he was called to do, that he succeeded in the mission that he was given. John may not be getting out of prison, but he's going to die knowing he's accomplished something great. Something of eternal significance. Jesus then turns towards the crowd. And he says, what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he's a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you expect things to function a certain way. If I play a song for you, you dance. If I play a funeral song, you mourn. That's just how it goes. But Jesus says that's not how the world always works. John came and lived a sacrificial life of holiness. He did everything he could to show the rest of the world that he was dedicated to God. A few weeks ago, we talked about a group known as the Essenes. Just a brief reminder of who these people were. But they, there was this group of people in Jesus' time who decided that the best way to serve God was to actually separate themselves from the rest of society uh, and create a little, uh, little community of their own dedicated to following the Old Testament law. They, they lived in the wilderness they, eat, they ate simply, they worked simply, they writ, wrote the Bible down. Um, actually, I was in Qumran just last week. Here's a picture of that. I'm going to do this a lot because it's fun. Um, that's, one of, that's one of the spots they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. Um, and you saw this little village there that kind of was a self-sufficient thing on its own. Now, that particular kind of lifestyle fits John the Baptist really well. We don't know if he was in the scene for sure, but he lived like one. And so, so, so John's main focus was holiness. It was kind of his thing. 
What Jesus says is that even though he did his best to show the world that he was living the purest, holiest kind of life, when people observed him, they still called him a demon. John did everything he could to show that he was dedicated to serving and following God, and the world saw him and they said, this guy's a demon, which kind of stinks for him. Living a sacrificial life, trying to show that you haven't been corrupted by the world and you get called a demon. Jesus goes on to say, I've come, and even though I, I haven't separated myself out of society like the Essenes did to show the holiness that way, I've actually got into the mess. I've cared for the poor, the marginalized. I've lived out what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, I did, I did, I've done everything I could to show people that I care for them and I love them and I've eaten with them, I've drank with them. And you'd think the religious folks then, just like with John, would say, hey, that's great, that's what we wanted, but what do they do instead? They say, this guy's a drunkard. He likes going to parties with sinners. He's the worst. The point that Jesus is making is that often we think things are supposed to go a certain way. Then we might even do everything that we're supposed to do, live the right way, live the way that's, that we're, that, that's been laid out before us, and we might still get rejected by the world. Both of these guys did everything they go- could to live the holiest life possible, and the world killed both of them because of it. You see, throughout this entire Matthew series, we've been talking about the kingdom life, right? The turn. We, we, Jesus begins his preaching ministry, as we've said so often through this series, with the declaration, repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. The word repent just means to turn, that there's this, that there's this kingdom life that's accessible to you, and if you're off course, turn towards it again. We've said it over and over again that Jesus' Jesus's desire for each of us is that we flourish, for us to have life and life to the full, Jesus says himself. We said that's why we follow Jesus. That's why we turn away from sin, or in other words, things that keep us from flourishing, towards that different kind of life. But this passage helps us understand something very important about the kingdom life here on earth. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that because we live in a world filled with broken people, the kingdom life isn't always going to look like we expect it to. There are times you're going to play the pipe and no one will dance. Or, in other words, there are times you're going to forgive. You're going to forgive someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness and still refuse to forgive you. Maybe you've experienced that before. I have. It stings a bit, doesn't it? Or maybe it's this. Maybe you're going to give yourself for somebody else. You're going to sacrificially give to someone else only to have them abandon you when you're in need. Anybody experienced that before? It's a tough one too, right? There are times when you're going to sacrifice what's good for you for the sake of someone else only to have it go completely unnoticed or ignored. There are going to be times when you're loving someone who's hurting only to be accused unjustly yourself. Happened to Jesus, it happens to us as well. In other words, there are times in which we follow Jesus perfectly and we're rejected or persecuted by other people because of it. 
And that's a painful experience, isn't it? If it's happened to you or it's happening now, I just want to say I'm sorry for that. I've lived it in my life. Maybe you have too. And that hurts. It's really, really hard. And it, it, it makes us understand what John the Baptist is going through, where we begin to question everything that we've believed at that particular point, don't we? It's not fair. It's not the way it should go. So if you're like me then, you're left with one final question. Is the kingdom life then really that fragile? Is it that weak? Can the kingdom not overcome the brokenness and messed upness of this world? So I want to close with two thoughts. First, John had an idea of what the kingdom was going to look like. And it didn't work out the way he expected it. John expected certain things to happen once Jesus walked onto the scene. We don't know exactly what that was, but we know he didn't expect to be sitting in prison like that. And so he began to question, but don't forget what Jesus said. He said, because of what John did, the kingdom was exploding. It was spreading all around the world. We sit here this morning partially because of what John the Baptist did. Things didn't go the way that he expected, but what Jesus is declaring at the end of the passage that we just read is that your time was not wasted. The things that you did, did not, wasn't for nothing. Jesus tells John, what you've done is kick off a movement that will change the entire world. He says, John the Baptist is one of the greatest prophets to ever walk the earth, and yet those who are the least inside the kingdom that is coming are even greater than he. He's not diminishing John there. He's saying that the, the, the movement that you've kicked off is going to create stuff that's so much better than you can even imagine. Again, we're here 2,000 years later, partially because of what John the Baptist had done. In other words, wisdom truly was proved right by his actions. That's how Jesus closes the passage. Jesus' declaration is true for us as well. You may follow Jesus and still experience the pain of this broken world. Things may not go exactly the way you want them to or expect them to. But Jesus' promise to John is the same to you, that your actions, if done in the name of the kingdom, to done to follow Jesus, will not go wasted. We see it affirmed in the book of Romans, in which God says God, that God works all things for the good of those who trust in him. That doesn't mean things aren't going to break. Doesn't mean there's not going to be pain. Doesn't mean that this is all part of some big plan either. That's a, mis it's a misnomer that we love to throw on that. What it means is, is that when we experience the broken pain, brokenness and pain in this world, it won't be wasted. That God will take the rubble, the, 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 the things that are left over, and build it into something beautiful and grand. And the same is true for John. It was same, will be true for you as well. Second, do you remember the quote I shared with you from the beginning from Sue? When she was asked the question, what, why, why did you come to Israel? She answered, I wanted to see God in the living water. And I think the response that I had to that is, yeah, don't we all, right? I, I do, right? We want to see God in the clear blessing. 
We want to see God when things are really good, when there's water everywhere. If some of the sites, I should have thrown up uh, some, of the, some of the pictures from places like in Getty where there's water in the desert that looks like a tropical paradise. It's, it's desert everywhere, but then there's this little spot called in Getty where, there's, where it literally looks like a tropical paradise. All of us want to experience God in that space where there's an abundance, where things are going really well, where we don't have to worry about where we're going to get our food or water from. That's what we want. We want to experience God in that water. We want to see God and as a result have our lives be easy and filled with only good things. All of us want that. But do you remember how she ended that quote? She said, I came to see God in the water, but I actually ended up meeting him in the desert. I think that's such a profound statement in the passage that we looked at today. See, things in our lives may not always go exactly the way that we want them to. We might not always have the things uh, that, that, that we want or experience the, the, just the blessings of God. We may, experience, we may still experience pain. We may experience hurt and hardship. But the truth is we don't experience them alone. See, it's in the desert where Israel actually gets to see God. It's in the desert they learn to rely on him, whether it's through the manna that comes each day or the following of a pillar of fire or cloud at night, which I don't know why this never clicked to me before, but if you're walking in the desert, the provision of God is, is so amazing. Do you ever wonder why it's a cloud during the day? What happens in the desert during the day? It's really stinking hot, right? You know, in the shade in the desert, the, the temperature goes down 15 degrees. What does a cloud do? Provides shade, right? What happens in the desert at night? It's really stinking cold, doesn't it? What does a pillar of fire do? It produces heat. Even in the way that God shows himself to Israel, it protects them in both of those ways. I, I don't know why I didn't see that before, but it's pretty awesome. See, it's in the desert where God provides enough for today. We don't live in the abundance of the living water. We don't live in the abundance of having everything we need when we need it. But what God promises us is, us, is in that desert, we're going to have enough to get by, enough to the next, for the next day. That he will be with us, that we'll experience him in a way that we wouldn't in other spaces. And that same idea is true for us today as well. Paul says it this way in the book of Philippians. It says, Then you will shine, like, shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming for your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So, too, so you too should be, should be glad and rejoice with me. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, pre present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understandings, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What we see is that we may experience times of the desert in our lives, times in which we don't have the abundance that we would have hoped for or expected, times in which the world's brokenness will push back on us, God doesn't promise that that's not going to happen, but what he does promise is that he'll walk with us through it. That while we're in that space, he'll come near to us, and at times, even when we have nothing else, 
will guard our hearts with a peace that just transcends our understanding, with something that we're like, I don't understand why I'm calm or peaceful in this situation, but I am because God's with me. So what do we do with all of this? There's just a few takeaways. We see in this particular passage that we stand with Jesus because it truly is the best way to live. That he's led us into a life that will, that in which we, will, that which we realize that we're doing things that have eternal significance. But it doesn't mean it's the easiest. That we stand with Jesus because, he's, because what we're going to find is that sometimes what we're doing is for me right now. Other times it might be for those who come after me, like we saw with John the Baptist. We follow Jesus because we know in the end, wisdom will be proved right by our actions. That as history looks back at us, they'll say, hey, even though this person didn't experience exactly what they expected, they did what was right and their impact was eternal. So we stand with Jesus not only for ourselves, but for those who come after us. For the legacy that we can leave to show other people that the kingdom is exploding all around us so that we can avoid the pain that comes from not doing things the way they ought to be done but live into the kind of life that either shows us the abundance of life that can come through knowledge of Jesus or the just enough that comes when we're all on our, lo- on our own. See, we stand with Jesus even when it hurts because we stand trusting Jesus that even when the world doesn't stand with us, he will. We do this thing together Because we truly believe that Jesus' way is the best way, but it's not the easiest. If you're experiencing pain right now, let us walk with you in the midst of that. Let let us be there for you so that we can show you that, that we're standing with you, even if the rest of the world may not. If you're struggling because you've experienced, you've expected your life to look one way and it looks a different way, know that you're not alone in that and many people throughout history have experienced the same. Know also that God walks with you in the midst of that. God, Jesus' way is the best way. It's not the easiest. Often it's hard. But what you will find is that in the end, when you look back on your life, you say, I lived a life well lived. And the impact that I have will show that as well. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to come before you with those of us who are hurting. For those of us that that thought when we began to follow you that it was going to look a certain way, and it hasn't. For those of us who are in a space like John, who maybe at some point in our life experienced the mountaintop experience he experienced at baptism, only to find later on that we're questioning what that experience actually was. For For those of us who are here this morning in that space, we pray that your spirit rest on them in a big and powerful way, that that spirit that transcends understanding Let's them know that they're not alone, that you walk with them. God, we pray that we can be bold enough to step into the hard places of life, even if it hurts because it's the right thing to do. That even though it might be a sacrifice now, we know that the impact that we're having is eternal and significant. May we be bold enough to do the right things even when it's unpopular. May we be a community of people that cares for each other even if the rest of the world doesn't. May we be a community of people that strives to care for the poor and the hurting. May we be a community of people that strives to live the kind of life you've called us to. 
Because even if it's hard to see, we truly believe it's the best. Amen.